Morning. How's everybody doing in the middle of winter? Are you sick of it yet? Yeah, I was sick of it about December 1st. I'm ready for May. Well, it's good to see you all this morning. I'd like to talk to you this morning about uh, <clears throat> the dense, semi-rigid, porous, calcified connective tissue forming the major portion of one of the primary anatomic systems of most vertebrate creatures. Yes, we're, we're going to talk about that, which consists of a dense organic matrix and an inorganic mineral component. Uh, there may be those of you amongst us who recognize that I'm talking about bones. We're going to talk a little bit about bones here to get started this morning. Bones, of course, are important to our health. Ability, are uh, important to our ability to function. Bones, we know, can deteriorate. Bones can get diseased. Bones, we know, can break. We also know they can heal. Bones have become an important part of our language. We have verbal expressions that use our familiarity with bones just to get a point across. We may say, he's a bag of bones. Or I have a bone of contention. I have a bone to pick with you. Bone up. Chilled to the bone, not a mean bone in his body. I can feel it in my bones. Make no bones about it. It can cut to the bone, bare bones, dry as a bone, and, of course, sticks and stones may break my bones. And bones are mentioned frequently in the Bible. I don't know what stories come to mind for you. When you think about bones in the Bible, I, uh, I certainly think about Joseph dying in Egypt and how it was so important to him that when he died, once they moved out of Egypt, as God had promised, that they would take his bones with them to the promised land so that he could be there. Remember when I, when I moved to California to become a police officer, when I got started out there, I made my sister promise, if I die out here, you bury me back in Wisconsin. I didn't want to be buried in California. Uh, of course, you remember uh, Samson using a bone, a jawbone, remember that story? The jawbone of a donkey to kill some folks. You remember the story of Elijah's bones? I think that's in Second Kings when Elijah has died and they buried him in a tomb. And they take some other dead guy and throw him in there. And as soon as he touches Elijah's bones, Elijah's bones, he poofs back to life. So there are stories uh, starting all the way back in Genesis when uh, Eve was made and Adam said, This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. All the way through the body of Christ and the prophecy that not a bone of his body would be broken. All through the Bible, we have stories of bones. I want to read to you a little story. I'll try not to read too much. I'll try to speak it mostly. But uh, Paul, in his children's story, was asking if anybody knew where Belize was. Did anybody know where Bulgaria is? Could you, could, you, could you point out Bulgaria on a globe? What's it close to, Sam? Okay, I can place that. I can place Czechoslovakia. Well, at this old, old church, and you know if you go to Europe, you find such old buildings. Here in America, you can go somewhere and you can find a 200-year-old building, and you can go there and find a 2,000-year-old building. So they've got this old, old church in Bulgaria, uh, and it is named after John the Baptist. And they say, some people say, that a handful of bones found at an excavation site at this ancient church belong to John the Baptist. They are John the Baptist's bones. 
There's no way to be sure, of course. There's no confirmed pieces of John the Baptist that can be compared to. But this little sarcophagus that was holding the bones was found near a second box, and the second box had the name St. John, and it had his feast date, a date that was remembered for him on June 24th. And now they've done radiocarbon dating on uh, the collagen in one of the bones, and it puts its age at, er, as early 1st century, very consistent with the New Testament and Jewish histories of Bron- John the Baptist's life. Now, it doesn't mean it was John the Baptist's bones, but they come from that era. Um, One of the researchers says, we've got some dates that are very interesting indeed. They suggest that the human bone is from the same person. In other words, there aren't three bones from three different people. These bones are all from the same person. They know it's from a male. They know that it has a very high likelihood of being in origin in the Near East or the Middle East where John the Baptist would have lived. The bones were found in 2010 by a, a Romanian excavating crew. On the island of Zveti Itan, I don't know that I'm uh, pronouncing that right. First word is S-V-E-T-I, S-V-E-T-I, Zveti, okay? And the second word is Ivan, I-V-A-N. Do we have any good language people in here that can tell me what Sveti Ivan would mean? Ivan is the same as Juan, which is the same as John, and Sveti is saint. So the island itself is named St. John. The church is named St. John. The little box that they found says St. John. And the bones inside, they think, might belong to St. John. Beneath the altar, the archaeologists found a small marble sarcophagus about, sarcophagus, about six inches long, and inside were six human bones and three animal bones. The next day, the researchers found a second box just 20 inches away, and on it, there was an inscription that said, Dear Lord, please help your servant Thomas along with St. John the Baptist's name and official church feast day. So you play detective on that. You try to figure out what that means. It paints a picture that there was someone named Thomas who was probably wealthy, and he brought these relics to the church for the dedication, for the beginning of this church that was going to be named uh, after St. John, on the island of St. John. It was common in the 4th and 5th centuries for wealthy patrons to pay for new churches and to gift saintly relics to the monks who staffed them. We can imagine that the construction of this church was predicated on the basis of this very important gift, the researcher says. Do you understand what's happening? Guy's given a lot of money to start the church. He's donating uh, these relics. He may have traveled half the world to to collect these and and to purchase these relics and uh, is dedicating them for the start of this new church. The human bones uh, include a knuckle bone, a tooth, part of a cranium, a rib, and an ulna. Uh, The researchers could only date one of those, uh, but they were able to reconstruct DNA sequences from three of the bones, showing that they're all from the same person, and that it's likely a Middle Eastern man. Oddly enough, the three animal bones, one is a sheep, one is a cow, and one is a horse, and they're all older. I don't know what that means. It's very curious, the researcher says. None of this proves that the bones belong to the historical figure named John the Baptist, but the researchers haven't been able to rule out that possibility. So even if the monks or those who started the church believed at the time that they were St. John's, they may not have been. There have been fake relics all through the ages. There still are. Did you know that we have the nails that held Christ to the cross? There are places in the world you can go to look at those nails. How many nails are there? Yeah, well, we've found 30. 
You can go around the world. There are 30 different nails that are alleged to have held Christ to the cross. So obviously there are fakes. Obviously there are, there are frauds. Uh, this Zveti Ivan box is not the only reliquary said to hold the remains of John the Baptist. According to the researchers, there are other ones around the world that also claim to have the bones of, Saint, uh, of John the Baptist. Now imagine if they go to some of these other sites and they do the DNA analysis and they find that these three bones that they were able to test from the island of Sveti Ivan match the bones that are claimed to be St. John the Baptist's bones in different parts of the world. They could prove through DNA that that's the same person. Imagine. Am I on? I can't hear myself echo when I step away from here. Am I still good? Can you still hear me? All right. All right. Imagine if they could prove that this is St. John the Baptist's bone. Can you imagine what that would do to our faith, what that would do to our denomination? Nothing. Right? I mean, it doesn't really change anything, does it? We believe he existed. Whether or not we can see his bones really does not mean anything, although there certainly are religions that... Uh, that uh, sort of devour those kinds of things. They look for relics. They look for um, holy things, if you will, and they sort of worship those in a way. I want to turn to a different bone story now with you in the Bible. This is in the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. A little trivia for you. Second Samuel in the old days used to be known as the second book of the kings. You had the first book of the kings, the second book of the kings, the third book of the kings, the fourth book of the kings, and then Chronicles. So Second Samuel 21. You're already there. I'm still turning. Mm. All right. I'm going to – I'm just going to kind of uh, – I'm not going to read word for word, but I'm going to uh, just go piece by piece. Starting, uh, starting in verse 1, there was a famine. That's where we start. The story starts with a famine. And uh, David is the king. The famine lasts three years. David goes to the Lord and says, why is this going on? What, how, how do we get this fixed? And God says to him, it's because of Saul, the bloodthirstiness of Saul, and because he killed the Gibeonites. Now, that takes us back to a different story. You remember back in the days of Joshua when the children of Israel were going into the promised land and they were supposed to drive out all the inhabitants of the land to spare no one, to just completely wipe them out and to take over this new land. That was the promised land that would be theirs. They were not to intermarry or any of those kinds of things. And uh, the Gibeonites were some neighbors that saw what was coming and they didn't want to get wiped out or driven out. So they pretended to be from a faraway country and they put on old ragged clothes and they got some moldy bread and they got these old wineskins and they came in and they said, oh, we've traveled so far to see you. We heard your fame. We know all about you guys. Can you please make a peace treaty with us? We're so far away, but we respect you guys. So they made the peace treaty. They didn't talk to God. They didn't ask him for his advice on that. And uh, they made a peace treaty with the Gibeonites who were not from a far country. They were from over the hill. But now they've made a promise. Now they'd made a peace treaty. And the Bible doesn't record the story, but apparently Saul reneges on the promise. And they somewhere go and attack the Gibeonites because 
God says it's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. That's why they're having the famine. So the king calls the Gibeonites and talks to them, and he basically says, um, how can we make things right with you? And uh, going over to verse uh, 3, he asks that question. In verse 4, the Gibeonites say, uh, we're not going to take any silver from you. We're not going to take any gold from you. Um, We don't want you to kill anybody for us. And David says, whatever you want. And they said, give us seven of Saul's relatives, his male relatives. Give us seven to do with as we will. And so David says, okay, at the end of verse 6, I will give them. He spares uh, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. There's a couple, there's two different Mephibosheths here. Be careful not to get confused. Uh, There are two Mephibosheths. There's the son of Jonathan, remember the one that was lame in the foot that David was taking care of. But there is another one who is a, a um, a son of Saul. Um, so the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the other Mephibosheth. Armoni and Mephibosheth, they are the two sons of Rizbah. She is one of the concubines of Saul. And they took the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai. That is not the same Michael. As a matter of fact, uh, in other versions, it will say that that is, in fact, Mirab rather than Michael. Those seven men are given over to the uh, Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, it says in verse 9, hanged them on the hill before the Lord. Now, God had told the children of Israel, you remember remember that it says in the Bible that blessed is he who is, or not blessed is he, cursed is the man who is hung on a tree. And they were very careful in Jesus' day at his crucifixion to get him off the cross, to get all the men off the cross before the Sabbath came, right? Right? There, it was considered a great disgrace for a dead person to, be, to remain out exposed. Remember when Saul died, they, they killed Saul and Jonathan, and they hung him on the wall. They beheaded him. They hung him on a wall as a sort of, a, a sort of an in-your-face uh, disgrace for the children of Israel. And that's sort of what's going on here. The Gibeonites kill the seven sons of Saul, and they hang him out for everybody to see. They put them on display. God doesn't like that. God didn't want that. He had told the children of Israel, if someone has to die, you get them buried, you give them a decent burial, even if they were a culprit. All right. Then in verse 10, it says, Now Rizpah, and she's the mother of two of these guys who have been killed, she took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured, and she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on those carcasses or the beasts of the field, to attack those carcasses. From the beginning, it says, from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured. That's April to October. For six months, Rizpah, the mother of two of them, is guarding the bodies. Guarding the bodies. They are still hanging out there. They are still in the highest form of shame and disgrace. And yet she is still giving them honor. You know, we, uh, we have one other visit with Rizba in the Bible. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 3, there is a, there is a place where um, uh, Abner is accused of sleeping. This is after Saul has died, is accused of sleeping 
with Rizpah. And when a king had a concubine, if anybody else slept with that concubine, it was considered the same as saying, I'm taking over the kingdom. I'm taking over the kingdom. You'll remember uh, uh, Absalom when he was trying to wrest away the kingdom from his father, David, how he took one of the concubines up on the roof in front of everybody. It was, it, everybody knew it. It was understood in that culture. That was a way of saying, I'm claiming the kingdom. And so Ishbosheth, Paul's son, who has the kingdom for a while, he's in charge. And now Abner, his commander of his army, is accused of sleeping with, and it's Ishbosheth who makes the accusation. He says, "You, why did you sleep with my concubine? And that's Rizpah. And Abner, it's a, it's a significant point in the Bible, in the history, because it turns Abner away from Ishbosheth, and he gives his loyalty to David. But what about for Rizpah? The how would you like to be that person? How do you get your how do you get your good name back? Well, I'm not sure what good name a concubine has in the first place. But I mean, she is accused of this. Abner makes a big scene about it, and and he defects over to to uh, David. But here she is, this woman who's been. I'm sure, buzzed about throughout Israel of having slept with Abner. The Bible never tells us whether that happened or not, but the accusation was made. That's that same Rizba who is now out for six months guarding these bodies. When it's blistering, hot, bright sun, daylight, she's guarding those bodies. When it's cold and windy and rainy at night in the darkness, she's guarding those bodies. Six months. Well, it's an interesting story. But what lesson can you get from that? You know, should we, is this a lesson that we should go to the cemeteries and, and, and pray for those who have died and put more flowers on their graves? Is that what this story is to teach us? It certainly says something about honoring people even after they've died, and treating people with respect and dignity, even after they've died. But I think there's a stronger lesson in the story of Rizpah for us, and that is this. Those who were hanging out there, her relatives, her son, yes, they were dead men, but for our purposes, they represent the spiritual dead, the spiritually dead. Are there people that you know in your family, perhaps, that you have been praying for for a long time because they're spiritually dead? Oh, yeah. We can all think of people in our circle of family or friends that we have been praying for for a long time who are spiritually dead. And we are being the Rizpas who are continuing, continuing, not giving up, keeping the prayers going, keeping and honoring those people, even though they're spiritually dead, because we think it might make a difference somewhere down the road. George Mueller, you know the story of George Mueller, a great man of faith who started orphanages uh, all over Europe and existed really day to day, almost hour to hour, to be able to run these orphanages by prayer, by faith. He didn't know sometimes what they were going to feed the hundred orphans the next day. They had no food. And perhaps an hour before breakfast, 
something would happen. There's a story about a guy with a bread cart, and he can't, his bread cart breaks. He doesn't know what to do with his bread, and he brings it all to the orphanage. He says, can you help me get rid of this bread? And they had been praying through the night for food. But you may not be familiar with a statement that George Mueller said on one occasion. He said, the great point of prayer is, that, is to never give up until the answer comes. He said, I have been praying 63 years and eight months for one man's conversion. Is that remarkable? 63 years and eight months for one man's conversion. And Mueller said, he's not saved yet, but he will be. He will be. How could it be any other way? I'm praying for it. That might be too simplistic for some of us, but the day came when Mueller's friend did receive Christ. But Mueller never saw it because it happened on the day that Mueller's coffin was being lowered into a hole. It was that scene of seeing that coffin lowered into the hole that made a sort of an analogy about Mueller's life. There was still a hole left in his life, something that he sought in his life, a gaping hole, a void of defeat where that prayer was never answered. And that hole represented a willingness and openness, openness on the part of God A door left ajar for a prayer that was persevering enough not to quit right to the end, and that man was saved at the funeral. Story of Christian author named E.M. Bounds. He had two sons. One was a believer, one was not. Bounds was praying for that unsaved son. Bounds died at the age of 90. His unconverted son was not saved. That son lived until he was 90, and then he was converted. Someone said that in relation to Rizpa, we should determine to cover those in sin and those in need with our prayer so that Satan can't devour them, be it daytime or nighttime. You get the analogy now? You see Rizpa guarding the bodies? We all have a role as a Rizpa to guard the bodies, to guard the spiritually dead so that Satan can't devour them. If Rizpa says anything to us, surely the lesson of prayer is do not give up. Don't ever Give up. Years, decades go by and you don't see an answer to your prayer. Don't give up. Keep praying. There is a song, I'm familiar with it by a guy named, an artist named Ricky Skaggs performing it. And uh, I didn't, I'm sort of ad living here, I didn't anticipate that I was going to sing this. But there is a portion of it that is so poignant, I think. He sings, Somebody's praying. I can feel it. Somebody's praying for me. You heard that song? He talks about some of the struggles he's been through his life. I've walked the barren wilderness where my pillow was a stone. And I've been through the darkest valley where no light has ever shone. But through it all, there was someone who was down on their knees. Lord, I thank you for those people praying all this time for me. That's a Rizpa. That's a Rizpa praying for that son who's off in the military or that son who's gone off somewhere else or that daughter who is just not coming to church anymore or that husband who only comes to church at Christmas when you really twist his arm behind his back and make him feel guilty. But there are these people that are hanging out there that need our continuing prayer and support. 
Go back with me to this uh, story of Rizpah again. Because I didn't finish it. I didn't finish it. We started talking about bones. Oh my, tell me where it is again. I just lost it. Well, there it is. I was on the right page. Thank you. We started talking about bones. And you remember the story in the Bible, the Valley of Dry Bones. There's, there's probably no more picturesque uh, or no more better uh, uh, mental image of a complete lifelessness than the Valley of Dry Bones. And there are people whose spiritual lives are best described as a valley of dry bones. There are churches that are best described as a valley of dry bones. But even in those valleys of dry bones, there is hope. In the story of Rizpah, you go to verse 11 and it says, David, the king, was told what Rizpah was doing, how she's protecting these bodies, how she's out there for six months keeping the birds and the beasts away. So David, it says, went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan. Those were the ones that had been strung up. They're in another city. Uh, He goes and he gets those where the Philistines had strung them up. And he brings those. And it says, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. Now it's talking about uh, uh, Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah and the other five. And gets all those bones together. And it says, they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son and all these men in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father. So we get a closure to all this. Rizpah has been out there faithfully protecting, guiding, not guiding, guarding, honoring, respecting these dead. It turns the king. It turns the king. Remember what it had? How did this? How did this chapter start? Very first verse. There was a famine. There was a famine in the land for three years, and David said, "How come?" And God said, "Because what Saul did to the Gibeonites." So David goes to the Gibeonites. He says, "How do I make this right?" They said, "Give us seven men." He gives them seven men. They kill the seven men. They hang them up to dry. There's still a famine. It hasn't been fixed. Ah. But in the last verse, it says they performed all these things that the king said. They buried the bodies after the king learned what Rizpah was doing. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. He sent the showers. The showers of blessings came after Rizpah turned the heart of the king and took care of those who were dead. Rizpah turned the heart of the king and saved them from the drought. The name Rizpah is interpreted live coal. Live coal. I like wilderness camping. I bank up a fire in the campfire at night. I wake up in the morning, it's dust, it's dry bones, it's just gray ashes, there's nothing there. 
But I put some birch bark and some dry leaves and some pine needles in there, and lo and behold, I get a little puff of smoke, and pretty soon I got a flame going, and you can hear the crackle, and I get some breakfast going, and it pulls people out of the tent. What did that? When it looked like I had nothing but dry, dead ashes, there was a live coal. There was a rizpah that was still there that I was able to use. Remember the story when Isaiah is commissioned, he says, I, I, I can't do this. I can't go be a prophet. I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angel takes a live coal, a rizba, and touches his lips with that live coal and starts him on his great journey as a prophet for God. Rizba is live coal. Rizba turned the heart of the king, respected those who were dead, stayed with them, wouldn't give up till she turned the heart of the king and it ended up bringing about the showers of blessings on a drought-filled land. Maybe you are Rizba. I have known many Rizbas in my life. I have been the benefit of Rizbas, Rizbas praying for me. Maybe you are that stubborn, that determined prayer warrior who won't give up on the spiritually dead. You continue to honor them. You continue to remember them. You continue to protect them. You continue to try to keep the enemy from devouring them through your prayers. The message of Rizba is keep it up. Don't give up on those spiritually dead. Don't give up on those prayers that you have been sending up for years, for decades perhaps. And it seems like you are getting no answer. Like George Mueller said, you'll get your answer. It has to be so, because you're praying for them. Father in heaven, one of our greatest frustrations as believers, as Christians, is seeing those that we care deeply about hanging out spiritually dead. Pray for the enemy. Father, help each one of us to be a live burning coal that will not give up, that will not disrespect or dishonor or turn away from those who appear by all means to be beyond saving because no one is beyond your grasp. Strengthen us, encourage us, whether that be for weeks or months or years or decades or our entire life. Give us the strength to continue on being that live coal, being that rizba that never, ever gives up. And eventually, we can turn the heart of the king and bring the showers of blessings. Amen. We do pray for those showers of blessing. We pray that they will fall upon the valley of dry bones. We pray that they will fall upon the churches that have become valleys of dry bones and upon the people whose spiritual lives have become valleys of dry bones and upon all who are lost and hanging figuratively out there on that tree ready to be attacked and devoured by the enemy. Father, Let us be live coals that won't let that flame go completely out, that replenish the flame, that bring about a renewal. Father, 
Be with us. Empower us. Hear our prayer. Heal our land. And give your showers of blessings, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.